Have a seat. Uh, We're glad that you're here, and just let me welcome you uh, again. And if you got a Bible, let's go back to Luke uh, chapter 4. Said last week the plan for today was to try to finish Luke 4. That was definitely overly ambitious, but we're going to cover part of it uh, this morning. And, and the title of the sermon is I'm Him. And this comes from a phrase, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, it's, you know, it's a meme, but it's a thing, especially in the NBA, if you like basketball, that uh, guys are throwing around a, a lot. Uh, the, the actual source of it, is what it seems like to me, is there's a rapper by the name of Kevin Gates who used this on an album back in 2019. Now, on the album, it, it, it said H period, I period, M period, and it stood for His Imperial Majesty. And, and, and the idea of I'm him is like I'm the man, I'm awesome. Uh, you know, you see NBA players on social media, you know, they'll have a great game and they'll post I'm him or, uh, you know, somebody will say something about somebody else that he's him and, and, and that kind of thing. And, and, of course, it's really kind of a reflection of pride in a way. I mean, guys, when we played sports growing up, you know, we had talk smack, talk junk to each other. Hopefully at some point in your life you kind of outgrow that, but that doesn't necessarily uh, always happen. And, uh, you know, I guess if you think you're awesome, sometimes uh, you want to tell uh, people that. Uh, but the point of the message, in a sense, is we look at this passage today in Luke chapter 4 that really arguably is the, like the theme passage in the book of Luke. Uh, the chorus of the second song that we sang, you'll see when we read these verses, is just pretty much the scripture uh, there put to words. But I think what we're going to see in this passage today is Jesus, in some sense, actually saying, I'm him. I'm the one, I'm the man, I'm the Savior, I'm the one sent from God. You see, in the Gospels, Jesus made a lot of audacious claims. And one of the ways that you can know that Jesus is making an audacious claim is that people tried to kill him. And we're going to see that at the end of this passage today, that they wanted to throw him off a cliff. And, you know, Jesus claimed to be one with the Father. They wanted to kill him. Jesus said that I am and, and that was what God had said to Moses. It was his name in Exodus chapter 3. So they wanted to kill him because they thought he was committing blasphemy. Here we're going to see that he reads a couple of verses from Isaiah 61 about the Messiah and basically says, I'm him. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that's sent from God and they want to kill him. And see, here's the thing about Jesus that I really want to challenge you with today. Okay, I really want you to think about this. All of us, you know, whatever age you are, but particularly if you're young, and, you know, there's several teenagers, young adults in this service, and you're deciding, like, you know, what, what's your life going to be about? What are you going to base your life on? What are you going to live for? Here, here's the thing about Jesus. C.S. Lewis said something that I think is absolutely true, that Jesus could be a lot of things, but one thing that he cannot be is moderately important. Because it's not normal for people to claim things like, uh, you know, they read from the Bible and say, oh, this is fulfilled in me. Like, if I did that today, you'd throw me out of here, and you should. Uh, for somebody to say, I'm the Messiah, somebody to say, I'm the Son of God, for somebody to say, I'm going to rise from the dead, normal people don't say stuff like that. So, 
Jesus can't be moderately important. Either Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, the King, and we ought to bow before him and give our lives to him and trust him and follow him, or he's an imposter, a lunatic, a deceiver, and we ought to reject him as such, but he can't be moderately important. He's not someone to be on the fence with. And so I, I want to encourage you today to consider what Jesus is claiming here as far as who he is and, and how you can have a relationship with God and to actually act on it, to, to not be on the fence. You know, he offers us the gift of eternal life. And something I read recently, according to one report, that I think this is relevant at Christmas, that there's 21 billion, with a B, dollars worth of unclaimed, unused, I guess unused is a better word, unused gift cards circulating around the United States of America right now. We may have some in our wallet or our purse or tucked away in, in, in some drawer at home. And, you know, we've been given something that has value, but we're not using it. You've been offered the gift of eternal life, but maybe you got it tucked away in a drawer, hidden away somewhere, and, and you're not doing anything with it. Do something with it today. Act on it. Consider what Jesus has to say here. So look in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. And it says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, which is how he always lived, to Galilee. And news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. He's coming back to his hometown. He knows these people. They've known him since he was a kid. So they know what he's like. They know his character. But they also you know, know him. Maybe some of these ladies changed his diaper, so to speak, when he was a kid. You know, There's a lot of familiarity there. It's not just like a stranger uh, coming in. You know, The old saying, there's an expert somebody who comes from 50 miles away with a suitcase. You know, We'll listen sometimes to people outside of us, but the people that are closest to us, we don't really want to hear what they uh, have to say. A, a, a lot of times, but it says, as his custom was, and custom means habit, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And if I could just, uh, just make one comment here, it was Jesus' habit to go to the synagogue on Saturday because he was a Jew. If we're Christians, it ought to be our habit, if we want to be like Jesus, to go to church on Sunday because Sunday's the Lord's Day where we worship the risen Lord. That's why it, it got changed. But if we want to be like Jesus, it should be a custom and a habit and not a coin flip every week. You know, unless there's some reason that we can't be here, it just ought to be what we do because we're giving the first fruits of our week to worship the Lord Jesus to actually show He's the most important things thing in our life and He's worthy of our lives. By coming to church on the first day of the week, we give Him our first and our best instead of our leftovers. So, you know, it should be our habit, our custom, our commitment, our conviction. But it says he's there on the Sabbath day, stood up to read. It says he was handed the book, or scroll would probably be a better, better uh, translation, of the prophet Isaiah. And when he'd opened the book or really unrolled the scroll, he found the place where it was written. And this is the first two verses, how we know it is uh, Isaiah 61. And so here's what it says. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, that's not all that remarkable in and of itself for him to read that. They would have done that every Saturday. You know, they would have read different readings from the Old Testament. Here's where it gets so remarkable. It says he closed the book or he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And he sat down because they stood to read the scriptures. They sat to explain the, the scriptures was their uh, custom then. And it says, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. So imagine Jesus reading this. Remember, he's the hometown boy. He's come back. He sits down. Maybe there's kind of a dramatic pause is how I picture it in, in, in my mind. It's just quiet for a moment. They're staring at him. They wonder what he's going to say. And here's what he says. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What did he just say? He just said, I'm him. I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. This is about me. I'm the Savior. I'm the one who's sent from God. Again, what an audacious claim. It's not something to be on the fence with. So what's he saying? He's saying here that he is the Messiah who came to save us. Uh, it says here, and, and, and there's a physical uh, application to it. I mean, he can heal and he cares about the poor, but I, I think this is really speaking spiritually. He says he came to preach the gospel of the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to give recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to be our perpetual year of jubilee, which is probably what the last phrase refers to back in Leviticus 25, where every 50 years. They set the slaves free. They canceled their debts. Jesus spiritually came to set those who are enslaved by sin free to pay the debt that we owe to forgive and save and heal and, and transform us, to bring the kingdom of God into our lives and into our world. This is what he's claiming. He's saying, in me there's salvation. Now, I want you to notice something, though, that, that's interesting uh, about what he read here, and I think we need to spend a minute on, on this. So, again, he's reading from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, but he leaves something out. Now, I don't have the right to do that. I, I'm here to explain Scripture, not edit Scripture. Right? I'm just a messenger boy. But since he wrote it, he can edit it and apply it in whatever way that he sees fit. So I want you to go back to Isaiah 61 for a minute. Either turn there if you've got a Bible, or it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible handy. And I want you to think about what we just read, what Jesus said. But then let's read Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and let's see if you notice what he left out. And so he says here, the Spirit... Uh, uh, the, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. What did he leave out? The day of vengeance. Now, that obviously begs the question, why would he leave that out? And the answer is very simple. 
It has two parts, but it's pretty simple. The first part is because this wasn't the day of vengeance. This was the day of salvation. That's why he came the first time. You see, the first time he came not as our conquering king to to defeat the enemies of God. The first time he came, he came as the servant king to save those of us who are the enemies of God. He came to proclaim the kingdom of God, to bring the kingdom of God into the world. He ultimately came to die and be raised from the dead for our sins. So he came to offer to them and us salvation and freedom and all the things that he's quoting in that verse. He didn't come to offer them vengeance. So the good news is, for us today, it's still a day of salvation. And you can be forgiven, and you can be set free, and you can be transformed through Jesus and his person and his work and what he accomplished for us. But what it also means And this is a lot of the reason why I believe that there's a second coming of Christ. It's a lot of reason why I believe that Jesus comes back and defeats the enemies of God and then he establishes his kingdom on the earth. To me, it's the only way to fit these two passages together. But someday, Jesus is going to come back again and then this is going to be fulfilled because all the scripture is fulfilled. There is going to be a day of vengeance where he comes back and triumphs over the enemies of God and he comes back to establish his kingdom and to rule and and reign. And the reality is we can confess him as Lord and King now and be saved, or we can confess it then when it's too late, but he does reign. He's the fulfillment of Scripture. But he came to save us. He's the Messiah. This is what he's claiming again. For someone to claim that they're the fulfillment of the Old Testament, you know, especially there in front of a bunch of Jews, uh, for, for someone to claim to be the Messiah, to be the Savior, it's audacious. I mean, Jesus is not just this sweet little teacher that some people portray him to be. What do you really believe? This is who he claims he is. So th- there's a man, I, I never heard of him until earlier this year. His name is Ervil LeBaron. He's dead now. He died in prison. His name probably should have been Evil LeBaron. But, uh, you know, there's um, a lot of one side of my family are Mormons. And, of course, you know, Mormon Mormon is not really Christian doctrine. But, you know, many of the people that are part of it are, you know, kind, moral people. But, you know, there's some crazy offshoots of Mormonism that are, you know, polygamist and all this kind of thing. Well, Ervil LeBaron was was the leader of one of those offshoots. He had at least 13 wives and at least 50 children, which is crazy. And they lived in abject poverty because who can you know, support uh, that number of people? I mean, just the kids had just a terrible uh, growing up experience. But that's not even the craziest part of it. The craziest part of it is people in the media uh, named him, nicknamed him the Mormon Charles Manson because people who didn't toe the line in their religious cult, he would literally have them knocked off. I mean, he would like hire hit men or coerce people within their organization to have have people killed. And he had at least 25 people, probably, that they know of killed. And and like I said, he died in prison. Well, one of his daughter's name was Anna. And and she eventually uh, ran away and escaped from this. And, And she moved in with her sister Lillian and her husband Mark. I guess she had escaped this at some earlier point. And she had actually become a Christian. 
Because one of the things Anna talked about, you know, there's a huge difference in any kind of religion and true biblical Christianity. Of course, it's, a, it, it's crazy extreme and something like this. She said, I never heard about Jesus. But her sister at some point had become a Christian. She said, they enrolled me in a Christian school. And several students there showed me love and acceptance quite different from anything I'd ever experienced. I'd ever experienced. I could tell they had something inside of them that I was missing and desperately needed. I learned about the good news of God's love for me. I learned how Jesus, God's son, was sent to earth to die on the cross for my sin and was raised from the dead. And then one night at a youth group retreat, I asked Jesus to come into my life and change me. And that night, God took the broken heart of a 13-year-old girl in his hands. And since then, he has been gradually restoring the wholeness that my chaotic childhood smashed to pieces. My faith has carried me through the dark valleys and has helped me persevere through intense fear, tragedy, and multiple murders of people I love. As a child, I knew myself only as the polygamous daughter. But when I came to truly know God as my father, he shattered the evil grip my earthly father had on my life. I began to find my identity as a daughter of God and learn to experience true freedom in and through Jesus Christ alone. And what I want to say to us this morning is if Jesus can bring salvation and freedom and transformation to someone with a background like that, there's no one in this room that he can't do the same thing for. Jesus is the Messiah who came to save us. But the question is, how are we going to respond? And that's really the second truth, the second part of this passage. I want us to see that salvation is the gracious work of God received by faith and not based on religion or ethnicity. It It says in verse 22 that all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. So the question is going to become, in eight verses, how do they go from there to trying to throw him off a cliff. They said, is this not Joseph's son? You know what? Maybe they're like we are a lot of the time. We like to have our ears tickled. Right? We, we want to be encouraged and, and, and not challenged. We want people to say stuff that makes us feel better. We have a tendency to want heaven without hell, prosperity without adversity, glory without suffering, love without wrath, salvation without judgment, and grace without truth. And so, maybe so far, there's like, you know, this sounds good. This is grace. But that's about to change in a hurry because here's what Jesus said. He said, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we've heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. What's he mean? Well, Thabiti Anyabuile, uh, I think, summarizes it so well when he says this. He says, Jesus goes on to anticipate what the people are thinking. Jesus sees them even though they don't see him. Jesus says a day is coming when they will say to him, Doctor, heal yourself. We can't help but think of the religious leaders at Jesus' crucifixion when they mockingly say, He saved others, let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, Luke 23, 35. That day is coming, but right now they want him to do in Nazareth, his hometown, what he did in Capernaum. They want him to put Nazareth first and minister there. They want him to prove himself by working miracles and putting Israel first. It's the response of pride and unbelief. It's self-importance and entitlement. Jesus finds no honor in their response. 
They're not going to honor him here. Familiarity breeds contempt. To them, he is always going to be Joseph's son, not the son of God. You see, beloved, it's dishonoring Jesus to call him something less than he really is. Muslims say they honor Jesus as a great prophet, but they dishonor him by denying that he is the son of God. Hindus say they honor Jesus by worshiping him as one of thousands of gods, but they dishonor him by not seeing that he is the only true God and all others are idols. Some people think they honor Jesus by saying he's a good moral teacher, but they dishonor him by refusing to see he is the Savior of the world. To honor Jesus, you have to receive him as he really is, the Messiah and Son of God who alone rescues sinners from God's wrath and makes those same sinners righteous in God's sight. So how do you see him? And then, if you do see him as the Messiah, the Son of God, who rescues sinners from God's wrath, is that just in your head? Or have you actually responded to him in faith and received him? Now, Let's read the rest of the passage, and we'll see what made them mad here, okay? And, and, and we'll, Jesus is telling them here how to receive him. So here's what he says in verse 25. He says, But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. In other words, he was sent to one widow who was a Gentile and not Jewish. Many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. One leper who was a Gentile and not Jewish. So, all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up, and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Why did they get so mad? Because he said, God's saving Gentiles. I mean, first they thought it was gracious words. But now they didn't like something he said, so it's like, let's just get rid of him. You know, people still do this all the time. We all have a tendency to do this, to have buffet Jesus, pick what we like and leave what we don't like. Or to say, well, yeah, I mean, I, I believe Jesus died for my sins, but that doesn't mean, uh, you know, I really want to live according to the Bible. Uh, you know, I, 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 I accept uh, that Jesus is the Son of God, but that doesn't mean I'm going to live according to the sexual morality uh, of, of the Bible. But again, if Jesus is Him... If he's Messiah, Savior, God, and King, he has authority over us and not the other way around, whether we agree with him or not. And someday we're going to have to answer to him. So it all comes back to who he is and what he did. Now, to kind of finish this up, let's look at... Um, these passages briefly that Jesus referred to. Let's go back to the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 17. And just 
see what he's referring to here and, and just look at some quick lessons here that he wants to impart to us and, and see how we can re- receive him. And then I just want to challenge you to respond to him. 1 Kings 17 says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. God in his sovereignty is orchestrating all of this. Listen, if you're a child of God, you can trust that God in his sovereignty is uh, orchestrating your life for your good and his glory. And so he, he obeyed, Elijah did. He arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. You see what she's saying? She's saying basically we have nothing. We're about to eat what we got left. It's going to be our last meal. And then we're completely destitute. God didn't send Elijah to the rich guy for his provision. He sent him to someone who had nothing. So he could both bless her and him. And then it truly be a miracle that glorified his name because it was humanly impossible. And nobody could take any credit for it. You know, if we're really going to walk with, by faith in our lives, I don't think we really want to walk by faith. I mean, I struggle with that. I bet you struggle with it. I mean, we want, you know, God just to provide, and then we take a step. Instead of having to take a step before God provides. They all had to do some things before all this worked out. Or, or, or our faith a lot of times when we're based on our circumstances, our reasoning, how we think it works together. And, and God's like, I'm just going to do something that there's no human explanation for. And, you know, sometimes in our lives we need God to come through in, in, in that way. And, and so she's like, we're about to die. This is all we got. So Elijah says to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Now, let's go to the second story, because really, the points are the same, so uh, let's just look at it, and then I'll tell you what Jesus is trying to tell us. So go to 2 Kings chapter 5. This is probably a more familiar story, you know, if you've been to Sunday school or Bible school as a kid, you've heard about Naaman dipping in the Jordan River seven times. And so Naaman was a Syrian commander, military commander, successful, honorable man, but he had leprosy. And so uh, he had a servant girl uh, who uh, told his household about the prophet Elisha in Israel. So he went to the king of Syria, and the king of Syria sent a letter to the king of Israel and said, hey, you need to heal my man here. 
And so, uh, picking up in verse 7 then, it says, And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, didn't even come out to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Now, if he was uh, you know, walking in faith then, this would have been great news. But look at his response. He became furious. He was insulted. Look at who I am, and this prophet won't even come out to me. Uh, look at who I am, and he's not coming out and doing something spectacular. You see, he wasn't broken yet. He wasn't humbled yet. And if we're really going to meet God, if we're really going to be saved, uh, the root of that is brokenness and humility where we come to the end of ourselves and we come to Jesus knowing that only he can save us. And, and so, you know, you know he's furious and he went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave, wave his hand over the place and heal the lep leprosy. Are not the Abana and the far, far the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And the answer is no. Not because there was anything magical about this water. Nobody else could have gone there and gotten healed from leprosy but it was because of the power of the Word of God. And God had a point in doing this to show there's only one way of, of salvation. We're only cleansed by the blood uh, of Jesus. We're only cleansed by trusting and obeying the Word of God. And so, you know, it says he turned and went away in a rage. And, you know, sometimes we need some people to talk some sense into us, Right? We all overreact sometimes, get emotional, get angry. That's where he is. But his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? I mean, if he could be healed of leprosy by giving him a lot of money and all this, I'm sure he would have done it. He says, how much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? And he listened to him. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him. And he said, indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. So what was Jesus saying by pointing them to these Old Testament texts? He's saying that salvation is God's gracious, sovereign choice. Many widows, one was provided for. Many lepers, one was healed. Listen, we don't deserve salvation. If God calls us to himself, it is by his grace, for his glory, something that we can take no credit for. We're just responding to what he has done. It is all him. We see here that God saves Gentiles, which I would think is good news for 100% of us sitting in this room at this moment. We see that faith is taking God, his word, and acting on it. We see that salvation is humanly impossible and a completely divine miracle. We see that you can be in church, so to speak, and completely miss or reject Jesus. 
Jesus said these things to their face, used examples from Scripture that they said they believed. And they tried to throw them off a cliff. And you may not, you know, think of Jesus like, I just want to get rid of him. But you may be like putting that gift card in the drawer. You may be like, I'll wait, or I want to do my own thing. Or, you know, I, I know I hear all this in church, but, you know, I don't know if I really believe all this. I want to kind of live my own way. Listen, going to church is not going to do you any good. It's only through Jesus and his way. We submit to Him and trust Him because ultimately salvation is the gracious work of God received by faith and not based on religion or ethnicity. John 1.12 says this, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, uh, nor of the will of the flesh, uh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Have you been supernaturally born again by receiving Jesus Christ? Through faith. If not, he invites you to come to him today by faith. He invites you to surrender and trust him and give your life to him. We do that. We stop relying on yourself and your religion and your own goodness. And, and, and again, just come to the end of yourself in humility say, I'm going to follow God's way. I'm going to go the way of the cross. I'm going to trust Jesus Christ. Will you bow your heads and, and close your eyes? And I want to give you an opportunity to respond to him. I mean, what do you believe about Jesus? Maybe you've heard this all your life. Maybe it's new to you, but either way, in this moment, the Spirit of God is working in your heart. And he's giving you the faith to believe this. You know that you're a sinner. You know that you're separated from God. You know you need to be set free. You need to be forgiven of those sins. And you believe that Jesus is God's Son who came from heaven to earth and died for you. Will you get off the fence and receive Him? Will you commit your life to Him? Place your faith in Him and call on His name and receive Him into your life? Listen, if, if you ask Him to forgive you of your sins and, and you truly trust Him and you confess Him as Lord and call on His name, He'll keep His word. He'll save you. He'll forgive you. So I just encourage you to do that right now, just between you and Him. If you need some help in praying, it's not the words that are magical. You've got to believe it and, and mean it and be trusting Him. But I mean, you can pray something like, Dear Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. I've lived for myself instead of you. I try to be my own God, but today I repent. Lord, please forgive me and change me and make me who you created me to be. I believe that you're God's son. I believe you died for my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead. We come into my life and save me. Will you be my Lord? I give my life to you. And listen, if you reach out to him in faith, he says he will not reject you. Just encourage you, if you've got questions about that, talk to me or somebody you know after the service or turn in a connection card. Or if you receive Christ, let us talk to you and, and help you get started on, on your spiritual journey. But again, let's get off the fence with Jesus. Jesus, we acknowledge you as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. 
We praise you for the greatness of who you are. We praise you for the, just the depth of your love and, and the greatness of the sacrifice that you made for us. Lord, I pray that you just draw people to yourself. Lord, set us free. Make us who you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray.